Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We are back to finish talking about the novella Sand Kings by George R.R. R. Martin. This was published in 1979. This is our second episode. It's the discussion episode. Previous episode was the recap episode. I think you described that as our classic format, Brandon. And yeah, I think people know how we do things at this point. And this episode, like the recap one before it, was nominated by one of our listeners who won the social media sharing contest that we ran last year. So I just want to take a moment here to thank everyone who participated in that. It was so helpful. The stories that the winners have chosen have been absolutely awesome, and uh, we're so glad for it. Yeah, we we couldn't be more grateful. We're really excited to actually get into the discussion of this this episode. So we're just going to do it right away. And I'm going to take, you know, the uh, circuitous route that I normally take around uh, talking about stories. So just bear, bear with us starting out. I think, I don't know, I'm no plotter on the level of George on the level of George R. R. Martin, but I think I think uh my opening is gonna pay off here towards the end of our discussion. So I think it's fair to say that we both really enjoyed this story, like a whole lot. We kept on calling it nearly perfect. And you know, I tried to make the point that even the the, the, the quibbles that we have with this story only point to like a more perfect story, which is when you know something is actually perfect. Because you're never gonna reach that next level. But I also want to say that this, you know, this story has been adapted at least once. And the way it was adapted was into the first episode of The Outer Limits from 1995, the reboot of that series. Uh, Bo Bridges plays Simon Crest. Have you have you seen this, Glenn? Not only have I not seen it, I did not even know it existed at all. All right. Well, it's on YouTube. You know, the last thing we'll talk about is ways in which we might think about adapting this story. And We'll also be thinking about some of the decisions that Melinda Snodgrass, who who wrote the teleplay for this, made in adapting it for a TV movie in 1995. But we should actually talk about the story we read first. And as I said in our recap episode, this story is a pure example of Martin's skill at creating tightly constructed plots. Almost every element of the story is set up and then it pays off. But there are a few elements of this story that I think are pretty fruitful for discussion and thinking both about character motivation and then also the way that Martin provides us as readers with with an element of surprise. And, you know, with this type of surprise, I'm thinking specifically about two scenes. And the first is the one where Cress kills Kath. The second is where we learn that Shade himself is a Sand King. And I think we're really also maybe meant to be surprised by the oranges showing up at the end, but that didn't surprise me because I was waiting for them to show up from the moment that Martin dropped them from the page. This is a classic mystery writing tactic, so I was more gratified by their appearance at the end of the story than surprised. Yeah, interestingly, the the only one that surprised me actually is the Sand King showing up at the end. Kath's murder, I, I thought, was fairly well telegraphed and intentionally so. And also the fact that Shade was going to turn out to be a Sand King was obvious to me from the very start. But, you know, by the time I read the story, I'd already logged, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of reading of speculative fiction. And so you see that you see that coming, I guess. But I thought the twist at the end was go- was actually going to turn out that, you know, Shade and Woe were going to show up and it was going to be the case that shade was an orange the whole time and we were going to learn something more about the, these these colors with the sand kings and that you know shade's been uh sonically or you know 
telepathically connected to the oranges that ran off here, you know, something like that. I mean, I knew Crest was going to come to a bad end, but I, I thought Shade was actually going to, you know, show up on page uh, rather than the ending that we did get. Yeah, this is really surprising to me because none of that stuff felt telegraphed to me from the beginning. So I actually really want to talk about Shade being a Sand King first. And it's funny that our senses of surprise are completely reversed in this story. (laughs) So this revelation about Shade being a Sand King really surprised me. And I wonder how you first felt when you got this revelation. I mean, you you said you kind of saw it coming, and I'd love to hear more about that. But I, I just wonder what it means for the story that Shade is a Sand King. And then who was its maw? Or is Shade then a slave or a worshiper of Jalawo? It's something I really struggle to make sense of in this story. But you, you seem to have felt that it was well set up. So I just I want to hear your experience of it. Well, I think that what's happening is that Shade is a maw. That's that's my sense of it is that, the, you know, what that actually means at the most advanced stage of Sand Kings is unclear. I don't think that they ever actually become mobile. And and this, I guess, is actually where I, th- I thought that this was was telegraphed. I should say something I haven't said before is this is not my first time encountering this story. I, I think it is yours, though. Right, Brandon? That's right. Yeah, it's my first time. Yeah, and I've read this story uh, a number of times. I, I encountered it for the first time ooh, right after I got out of the army, I guess, and was uh, reading an anthology of uh, really great science fiction stories uh, edited by uh, Gardner Dozois, who's uh, someone we've talked about quite a bit on our on our shows. But anyway, I've read this story a few times. And so, yeah, thinking back to that first time that I, I read this story, it really was the the fact that Shade is not in the store. Shade doesn't see customers. Shade doesn't go to parties. It was like, okay, Shade is not mobile. Shade doesn't go anywhere was, was kind of my immediate thinking was that he's going to turn out to be one of these maws. And I don't know that it's true, but my sense, my my, my prediction anyway, the first time I was reading this, and I, I look for clues about this when I read the story again, which I like to do from time to time because, hey, it's awesome, is that these maws that are installed in Cress's house are somehow Shade's babies. It's totally unclear where other Sand King maws come from. I mean, they must come from other Sand Kings in some way, but it's the process by which that reproduction happens is not explained to us, though, you know, where do mobiles come from is explained to us. That's a really excellent point. Thinking of Shade as a maw instead of a like a, a mobile who's advanced to the next level really helps me make sense of what's going on here. I guess then the question is, is do you think that Jala Wo had Shade from the time that it was a, a, like a tiny maw and let it develop through good care and that they have a partnership now instead of like a god uh, acolyte relationship or, or what do you think is happening with that? I mean, I think even a, a question a few steps beyond that one, Brandon, is uh, not quite what does God need with a starship, but uh, but you know what does like a, a, a house sized piece of red meat with a mouth need with a uh, a shop <laughs> like with money, you know. Right. <laughs> so it's a great question too. <laughs> but you know, I, the, the spirit of the question is, you know, what what's the relationship here? What's going on? I think that Shade is in charge, and that Jala Wo is, you know, perhaps an equal partner, but that they're a big part of their business actually is disseminating Sand Kings, and I say disseminating rather than sell because I I think that 
that might all actually be something of a front that this is about reproduction, that this is about actually getting Sand Kings onto other planets, and they are the children of of Shade. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that's my sense. I feel like there's a, some kind of like reproductive urge here. We're going to get into this in a little bit uh, t- more towards the end of our story when we start not just thinking about adaptations, but also about spinoffs. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm uh, pretty excited for that. So I won't say anything about... Uh, you know, why does a ma need a shop? You know, what's going on with the relationship here? But maybe we can use this type of relationship between Jalawo and and Shade to think about this element of worship in this story. And maybe the first question I want to ask to set this up is, okay, so you think that they're trying to get Sand Kings out to like other planets. That's one generic and by that, I mean like genre trope way of approaching this story. And and we can continue down that line. But why did, to me, that's not the core genre that the story's in. So I kind of want to think about the story in multiple ways. And we'll talk about that soon. But in thinking about worship and uh, the religious nature of these creatures, why did Jalawo even sell these creatures to someone who demonstrated, even in the shop, that they're like too impatient to manage this, especially during the tank setup? You know, why did she sell Sand Kings to someone who was so deeply unfit to own Sand Kings? It's certainly not a responsible choice, right, to, to do that. Uh, certainly no animal shelter would ever let Cress walk out of there with anything, right? But I think that we can glean something from this business with the police officer, this scene with the police officer who's talking about licenses and, and, and permits and regulations. And I think that one of the things that's going on here, right, is that the Sand Kings have not been cleared for this planet. They've not been cleared to be sold, even as pets, certainly not to be released into the, the, the wild at all and never would be because of the nature of them. One of the things is a question of sentience. I think it's clear that Shade is a person. I mean, is you know, a maw, as we've been saying, but but is going to qualify as a sentient individual. We might not think that the Sand Kings that are present in Cress's house are, at least not to begin with. But at any rate, there might be a moral issue there about defining who's a person versus who's an animal who can be owned by another person. But also, these clearly are going to be a massive environmental hazard. They can eat poison. Now, you know, Even flamethrowers are pretty difficult to employ against them in laser cannons, right? So no way that they're ever going to be allowed to be sold here. And so the only customers for this are going to be people like Cress, people with, with wealth and people who don't care about following the law. And, uh, you know, that's a little dialed up to 11 here in the character of Cress, I suppose. But I think if you take those two combinations, you, you get something like Cress kind of no matter what. Yeah, I think that's true. And and so maybe if this really is about uh, putting this species on other planets to invade or something like that, and, you know, just spoilers, if you haven't watched an Outer Limits episode from 1995, that's the tack that Melinda Snodgrass takes. You know, Melinda Snodgrass was a writer on TNG, and she's written a lot of science fiction as well. She's co-edited other work with Martin. So she knows Martin's work really well. She knows science fiction 
in and out. And so, you know, that's the tack that she kind of takes in, in her adaptation. Um, but to me, you know, another thing we can say about the illegality of all of this or the questionable tactics that Joe, uh, well, and shade use is that they don't even bother to register their business. When, <laughs> when, uh, when Cress is talking about, you know, how he bought these, creatures from Woe and Shade, everybody's like, well, that place doesn't exist. You know, it's already closed <laughs> up shop. So that that to me, like leads into this other sense of this story, which is that this story really riffs on the cursed object from the curiosity shop trope, which we'll talk about. But it, it, what I want to say while we're kind of continuing on with Jala Woe as a character is that this also leans into the kind of Orientalism that we see in movies like gremlins and even though we're on this 1000 planet conglomerate martin is still using like these broadly asian sounding names to provide his readers with a sense of exoticism and this struck me as kind of a strange move especially in a story that has a lot of like apostrophes and last names <laughs> so uh just as a kind of like world building question what did you make of martin's decision to kind of employ this orientalism as exoticism when he's working with this really broad uh, multi-planet system. Well, I wonder even how intentional that was as a, a real choice that Martin was making, so much as Martin himself just working within the the tropes of this genre. I mean, you're I mean, you're absolutely right that everything about the character of Jalo Wo and the shop that she's running when Crest goes in there feels like it's a, a kind of late 19th, maybe early 20th century description of a, a shop in like San Francisco's Chinatown or something like that. Like it absolutely 100% feels that way. The description of where in the capital city this even is and how Crest got there, all of that fits right into that that mold. But I think it's really just the, the, the name, Jalo Wo, as you're suggesting too, I think, Brandon, that really reinforces that. And uh, yeah, I think Martin could have made a different choice there because of course, the other thing that's happening here is that it's not just, does that name sound orientalizing to us? It's how do the other names sound? And most of the other names are just kind of Anglo. I mean, it's Simon Cress and, and Kath, right? So Jala Wo, though she's a human, her name at least is from a language that is different from the the names of the the principal characters that we have here in this story. And even though the planet and some of the the, the place names are Scandinavian, that that's just not the case of the the characters here. Yeah, I'm with you on this 100. percent This was really a decision to lean into that uh, exotic curiosity shop that shows up and then disappears. You know, you can't return the gremlin, you know, it's, right. <laughs> it's, it's exactly that sort of thing. And that's just part and parcel of this story. But it really makes me wonder about this. Uh, you know, you read this as like a, a science fiction story on a lot of levels. I'm really reading this as a cursed object story because of the way that Martin is deploying these curiosity shop tropes throughout this story. And I think that's kind of affected our different readings and, and we'll get to that, but I want to continue along with the, these moments of surprise in the story and how they kind of relate to character motivation. So let's talk about Kath's death. This was surprising to me because while we know that Cress has no regard for animals, 
killing a person feels like an elevation of behavior. And then he just keeps on killing people after this first one. I mean, we don't even learn about uh, Lysandra, the assassin, until after Kath's death anyway. So I have a few questions about this part of the story and and really the elevation of behavior that Kath's death represents. So do you feel like Martin wants us to feel good about the other characters that Kress kills because they're either like assassins or brutal people or just truly evil? Or do you think he wants us to feel as bad as we feel when Kath dies because all of these deaths follow it? In other words, do you think that the emotional scaffolding is there uh, to really pull off Cress's elevation of behavior to pay it off for us as readers? Or are, should Cass's death have come last as a kind of recognition of the evil of Simon Cress's behavior? This is a really interesting question. Lysandra, her operative who's there with her, the person who filmed the animal torture tape to send to Kath, although, you know, she may not have known that it was going to be for sending to Kath, but nonetheless, she was there with a you know video camera filming the, the torture and, and killing of a baby animal. These people, if, if any of them had died first, right? Assassins, animal torturers, we might actually have felt like this is all kind of a wash. This is just bad people treating other bad people badly. And it would have then, I think, perhaps felt a little bit just kind of like some torture porn, really. So I think that the move to start the killing with Kath, the the one demonstrably good person in the entire story, is probably the right move from a moral standpoint. Though I see what you mean from a storytelling standpoint where you might want to, you know, keep at raising the stakes at, at every death and, and escalating and escalating and escalating. I think that we need the the shock first for us to not grow numb by the time we get to get to Kath. Yeah, that's an excellent point. It certainly could have been. And it's and it's really actually hard for me to imagine, too, how Martin would have gotten Crest to kill one of his evil compatriots right because like i think that crest sees them more as one of his kind and kath is like an outsider so it really could have been that this moment would have required a significant rewrite of the second act to get kath more involved in investigating the sand kings and the deaths of people that are still part of her social cachet but she doesn't really involve in and i think it but whose lives she's not really involved in and i think that would have really had forced uh, martin to rework the whole second act and i'm glad he didn't you and i are both on record here saying we wouldn't change anything about this story right and, <laughs> and i still believe that but these are just questions i have about storytelling that for me as a writer are really interesting why make these choices um you know and it almost feels like if kath's death were last that this would be a story about how the Sand Kings are a kind of instrument of justice in some way. And I don't think Martin is going for that in this story. They're kind of neutral reflections of their god, which is kind of what makes this a cursed object story that's amplifying amplifying the flaws of Cress rather than it being some kind of visiting of justice on this planet. And I know, you know, I know 
cursed object stories are often about morals, but I'm wondering if you're if thinking of this as a cursed object story of this elevation of stakes works on that level for you a little bit better, maybe. Yeah, that's another really good. Yeah, that's another really good question. Let me backtrack just a second, though, just to say that in terms of, of thinking about the the plotting of this story, I mean, from the writing craft perspective, right? Imagining that uh, I had, you know, anywhere near the talent that George R. R. Martin has, and <laughs> I had come up with this sort of basic idea of a story, and I'm thinking, okay, but now, how do I get the killing started, right? How do I get Crest to start killing people? I think the move that I would have gone to, well, it would not have been, I can definitively say, it would not have been animal torture and, and, and filming animal torture. But I think even just my impulse actually would have been to have the first death be an accident, uh, something that happens at one of these parties. But of course, there would be a third person who was there who saw the thing and maybe even helped Cress deal with the body. And then Cress later is like, ah, I need to get rid of the witnesses. And that's the train that he goes down. Martin's move is obviously so much better because it makes that first killing uh, even as, as much as it grows out of some accidental circumstances, that choice means that the killing, the decision to kill, grows out of Cress's nature, Cress's character, right? It's not entirely an accident, even if the circumstances themselves were not planned. And that's much better plotting and much better character work. It's connecting the plot with the character in ways that I don't usually do, I don't think. Yeah, I also, I mean, I really admire what Martin has done here because he's dealing with all these different tropes, but he's keeping the story so focused on one character who is just continually moving just beyond his element. He's just passing through these thresholds where each decision makes everything worse. And that's because of the type of person that Cress is. So this isn't a bigger story about Jalawo and Shade and their desires or what they're trying to accomplish. It's not a big story about how Cress is killing his evil friends. This is a story about Sand Kings getting free on a planet. And the reason why they do that is because well, they're sold to the wrong person or maybe the right person, depending <laughs> on how you're reading this story. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a genuinely brilliant move. So to go back to your question about, but seeing this story, reading this story as a, a cursed object story, I, I, I guess I, so I don't unsee that or not see that I guess what I'm trying to say here. I think it absolutely fits into that genre. You've nailed the, the, the shop as a real standard trope in, in that genre. But I think that, the object in this case, right, being the Sand Kings, the Sand Kings in the, the tank, are themselves not really cursed in any way. Like, I don't at all think that there was some, you know, sinister plan uh, by Shade and Woe that the Sand Kings were going to get out one way or the other. That I don't think is happening at all. I think I think Crest could have bought these things, had them installed, and done exactly what Woe told him to do, cared for them per instructions. And just had some interesting pets for, you know, as long as they live, we don't, which, you know, we don't know how long that is, uh, but for as long as they live, that, that could have been a thing that happened, but that the, the curse itself is actually inherent in the character of Cress, not in the object themselves. That's, that's my feeling about it. Right. And that's kind of, uh, I don't know. That's the gremlins move, I think. Right, right. <laughs> in telling this story is that the cursed object isn't the object itself. It's the flaw in the person who 
gets the object. And uh, that's a great way of telling a cursed object story. I'm pretty excited to uh, use this tactic myself in in, uh, future stories that I want to tell. But uh, I have another question about this series of escalating murders. And it's this. We know that Kath's murder was a mistake, and it happened while the Sand Kings are still contained. And then Cress helps the sand, the White Sand Kings at least, eat Kath. And then the murders all happen after that, and all the people are being fed to the White Sand Kings. So do you get the sense then that Martin is communicating us to that Cress was willing to kill these other people or that he kills them simply because he's under psionic control. And this is what the white sand kinks want. And he's feeling empathy for the first time. And he th- because he's such a narcissist, he thinks it's his own feelings. <laughs> uh, or do you think he really wanted to kill in order to feed the white sand kinks or a little of column a, a little of column B? No, I, I actually don't think that the killing is related to the, empathy with the or, or sympathy i guess really it would be with the uh, sand king maw and i think that this is one of the points actually of jala wo explaining you know how this all works to him on the telephone and saying that yeah the 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 mobiles are molting they're going to turn from something that's insect like to something that's kind of mammalian uh in fact you know something that's kind of simian really and at the same time that that's happening, the maw is also transforming. And one once it's done transforming, once it's done molting as well, it too is going to have sort of new characteristics. And one of those new characteristics is going to be an increase in its uh, sonic, uh, you know, sympathetic powers. So I think that that's saying that right now it it, it can't do exactly that kind of thing. It certainly can't control people around it but maybe it can you know in the future but but not at the stage that it's at as Cress is uh, well really living this living this story and so i think that is all entirely coming from Cress right that Cress he just he's just a sociopath and i think that's really clear right not even just from his interactions or treatment of the sand kings i think this is very clear in the way that he's treating people just just at parties that he's throwing right that he is not someone who sees people as people or sees people as you know f- beings that have uh value <laughs> to you know beyond how he can actually use them for his own needs right he is a real sociopath and so yeah shoving some people down the stairs so that he can escape so that he can be safe i think i think that's all that's all from him 100% from him yeah i mean i can imagine a, a direction that this story takes where where Crest becomes dissatisfied with the size of his terrarium or whatever and moves it to the swimming pool with a lid and everything like that and then has people fight the sand kings as the betting gets out of control (laughs) and things like that and i think he's just the type of person who would agree to that his betting friend would be like well why don't we get them bigger and then put a person in there and see what happens and he'd be like yeah oh yeah that sounds pretty good and uh yeah the reason why i asked this question about the psionic control on some level is because martin talks to us about the way that Cress's own biological drivers like hunger have really been connected with the Sand Kings, where he feels satisfied when they eat and hungry when they're hungry. And that's part of the reason why Cress is feeding the White Sand Kings people 
because he knows they're hungry. But I just wondered if you felt that that type of sympathy or sympathetic connection, it was expanded really in, in the story or if Martin wanted to keep that scope really limited. Yeah. And I, I think that the scope has to be limited here because, right, we've talked about, you know, this has got some science fiction elements to it, right? That's a, a science fiction story in some ways. It's this cursed object story in others. It's also a monster story. But uh, the thing is, it's not the Sand Kings who are the monsters, right? It's it's Cress. Cress is the monster in this story. Yeah. And that kind of leads us into thinking of this story as like a picture of Dorian Gray type story, which is another cursed object story, I guess, of a kind. <laughs> you know, a person wants to party forever, but never want to see their own reflection. <laughs> and that's... Uh, a moral story, in a sense, just as many cursed object stories are, where the character is meant to learn a lesson or have some sort of final reckoning with their behavior. And that kind of happens to Crest, but Crest doesn't really learn anything in this story. He doesn't really learn anything about himself. Like the most he's learned is not to do this again. So I'm wondering if you feel like Martin is driving at a moral lesson or he's doing something that's more akin to gremlins where it's like, uh, well, we, we fed our gremlin after night because, because it was hungry. And we thought that was the right thing to do, even though nothing that Crest does is the right thing to do. And then the monster gets out of hand or whatever. Do you feel like, yeah, Martin's driving at something other than telling just a really entertaining yarn that's a bit of a recipe using ingredients to build this recipe from other stories and genres? Yeah, I, I think Martin definitely has a, a point of view here, which I'll talk about in just a minute. And I had not realized, I mean, I should have, like how much uh, gremlins we were going to be talking about here. I should have revisited Gremlins. It's been a while since I've I've watched uh, either Gremlins or Gremlins Two. But uh, yeah, the thing with Gremlins, like the whole gimmick with Gremlins, is you know there are these rules that you've got to follow, and if you don't follow the rules, you know the cute thing's going to turn into a monster, and that's a great premise. And wow, Gremlins, it's a great movie. It's a really great movie. <laughs> but the 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 gimmick there is that. All it takes is making a mistake. All it takes is forgetting a rule or like, I don't know, having your power go out and you don't know what time it is, right? Like, right. you know, the, <laughs> it was inherent from the get-go, from the setup that at some point a mistake is going to be made and we're going to get monsters. And it's really just a question of when is that going to happen? But that's actually not the gimmick here at all. It's not that there are certain rules that are, are hard to follow or easy to break, that that's going to happen, right? That the rules are going to get broken. It requires Crest to be horribly flawed. It requires Crest to be someone who enjoys torturing other people in order to get the Sand Kings to become scary creatures who are a threat to him and a threat to others. They only become that as a result of Cress's deliberate choices that they are reflecting ultimately who he is and that, you know, someone else, a responsible person could have wound up with these sand Kings and everything would have been fine. Right. I mean, Cress is just a bad God, right? And we haven't really talked about this element of the story, the, the Frankenstein element, right? Which is the relationship or the question of what God owes to its creations. 
And so Martin is, you know, again, pulling on this. I think he's really leaning more on, on Dorian Gray type stuff where Crest just doesn't want to see how awful he is in the eyes of people he's responsible for. And we know that's the case, you know, with his friends even. But how do you think Martin does in exploring the that tension between what what a god owes to its worshipers right that's the whole selling point from woe at the start of the the story right is the 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 hook that she gets crest to want to buy the sand kings is have you ever owned a pet that worships you right and i think that uh anyone who finds the idea of being literally worshipped by another creature, another person, a pet, whatever, uh, anyone who finds that to be a real high point, a real attraction, a real motivation, that's someone that you should run from. I mean, just just hands down. And uh, just to circle back briefly, Brandon, to the, the question that you asked previously about sort of is there kind of a, a message here in this story? I think definitely there there is, right? Martin is presenting Cress as, you know, certainly dialed up to 11, but he's presenting Cress as psychopathic, sociopathic business person, right? Someone who has gotten wealthy by exploiting people without any mercy, that this is someone who has used a complete and utter disregard for people, uh, animals, really anything, right? Society, uh, the environment. He also, right? We we were talking about the police officer not uh, not taking ecological protection, environmental protection seriously. But Crest doesn't either. As a citizen of this planet, as an inhabitant of this planet, he doesn't care about the ecology or the environment of this planet and what might come as a result of his choices, how other citizens, uh, generations hence perhaps, will be affected. He doesn't care about other people at all. And that is a tool that he has used to acquire wealth. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, to the extent that there is a moral message in this story, that is it, right? It is beware those people. And uh, also maybe we should do something about them, right? Yeah, it's, we can't let people destroy our world and then uh, be able to live in a hotel room because the money's not an object to them, you know, and and then they'll live in some kind of barricaded place, some kind of safe place. You can imagine if the Sand Kings take over this planet, he'll just move to another one and continue his business dealings there. And yeah, maybe this is also a story that that is warning us about uh, business conglomerates and globalism on some level, too. <laughs> you know, it's, it's great. But I think you're right, because this first paragraph of this story is so amazing, because at first we sympathize with Cress. Yeah, he's got dangerous animals. He's got exotic tastes, but he's thinking about how to care for them. And then we get that gut punch. Their death amuses him, right? And it's just so, so brilliant. And Martin, I think, I mean, this story is just true, truly a masterpiece. All right. Well, let's uh, let's talk about how we might think about adapting this story. And we're going to circle around this question a little slowly so we can touch on some world building elements that Martin has done. And that's really the first place I want to start. We know that this story is part of a universe that Martin has created, a single setting to tell all types of stories in. So the real question is, the first question in thinking about adapting this story is recognizing the degree to which this thousand worlds is an important element of this story's success. So what elements of the thousand worlds do you think are important to this story's success here, Glenn, if any? How necessary is that as a setting to the telling of this story? 
Well, I, I think zero, and I don't think, which is which is great. Uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about my history with this story, and maybe with with George R. R. Martin in general. Which is that uh, when I was in the army, I had read the first fifty pages of Game of Thrones several times, and never made it any farther than that. I just got so annoyed at uh, King Robert's dialogue, and I said the first time I was reading the book, I said, if he says by the gods one more time, I just have to rage quit this book. And well, he did on the next page. And I just, <laughs> you know, I kept bouncing off of uh, whatever scene that is about 50 pages into the mass market paperback of that and just thought maybe George R. R. Martin isn't for me. And then I read this, uh, this collection and I just said, I'm going to read every story in here. And even though Martin was someone who I thought of as not not for me, not to my taste. This story is obviously awesome, right? The story is, as we've said, nearly perfect. And wow, it hooked me. But what I'm really getting at here is that I had no idea about the Thousand Worlds business as I read this story. It's not something I, I learned about uh, until uh, you know a few years later when I started wanting to actually go and uh, track down all of George R. R. Martin's uh, 1970s, uh, 1980s, and, and early 1990s short fiction, which is definitely something I recommend to anyone. And you just don't need to know anything about the Thousand World settings, I think, in any of those stories to get them. It is cool that you can find little Easter eggs uh, from story to story. Uh, you know, a planet that's mentioned in one story becomes the setting of another and that sort of thing. Species repeat. Uh, but this is a setting that is done so loosely, right? Martin didn't set out to build uh, a, a storytelling universe. It's really just that he'd written a few of these and started having fun laying those little Easter eggs, but never enslaved the stories to the setting uh, the way that I think is kind of the default thing to do these days in, in publishing and in speculative fiction publishing. It's a lot more like Lovecraft, right? Where, hey, look, I'm going to write this story the way this story needs to be written. And uh, I'll throw in some Easter eggs that show that this is connected to this other setting, but I'm not going to change, but I'm not going to change the story I want to tell to fit the rules of a setting that I've already created. So yeah, just the, the short answer that I've been not giving is now nah, you don't, you don't need to know anything about the setting. Yeah, you really don't. And one thing that the 1995 adaptation of this story did, again, written by somebody who has a close working relationship with George R. R. Martin is that she stripped away all of the space stuff and had this take place on Earth, where a scientist finds the Sand Kings in soil from some kind of uh, Martian expedition or something like that. And then the story goes on from there. He steals them and, you know, starts to witness. He only gets, uh, I think, white and red Sand Kings. So there's not like the four houses type of stuff, which <laughs> we know Martin is going to continue on within his writing career, um, you know, and uses the Sand Kings to... Destroy professional rivals and things like that. But that also then strips the story of its kind of cursed object and curiosity shop element, where it's about uh, a person who's getting carried away with a scientific discovery uh, who wants to make their name off of it instead of somebody who is getting a comeuppance from their own character flaws. Though I'm sure that's an element of the adaptation as well. So, what do you? Do you think if you were adapting the story, you would keep 
that cursed object sense of it? Or would you, like Melinda Snodgrass did, kind of move it into the realm of scientific discovery and professional jealousy? I regret, I guess, that uh, I didn't watch this before we hopped on the air today, but I'm also actually kind of excited that uh, I'll be primed for this and that I didn't see it. But part of what really excites me about this, in fact, maybe the thing that excites me about this is uh, that you keep saying Melinda Snodgrass over and over and over again. And wow, that gets me going. Melinda Snodgrass wrote the what is really one of the best Star Trek The Next Generation episodes, really one of the best, I don't know, TV episodes of all time, The Measure of a Man, second season Next Generation episode. Uh, for people who don't know, uh, we do a Star Trek show here on the network uh, that I do <laughs> with my co-host Valerie Hoagland. That's called Lower Decks. And we, in fact, Valerie and I, the last thing we recorded, uh, last episode we recorded is, in fact, uh, has a lot of praise for Melinda Snodgrass. I think she's a phenomenal writer. And I just had no idea that this existed. So that has me really excited. But to get to your point here, Brandon, or the point of your question is, you know, do I think that the the decision to move it to Earth and, and, and you know, present day Earth, right, move this story into our world, you know, do I think that that's a good idea or not? Uh, well, I think it's definitely a good idea for TV. And I think that is definitely what you have to do if you're going to make it an Outer Limits episode. Right, because the, the Outer Limits is a show that is grounded in our own contemporary society. Right, it's not. Though I've not seen the '90s uh, reboot, I should say. But you know, the original Outer Limits is weird stuff happening in our own society. Right, our own contemporary society. So those are kind of the rules there. Right, but I also think that that's a real specific choice that actually strips the story of the science fiction elements that really appeal to me, where this is a story uh, that it can be read through the lens of ecological science fiction, where maybe you're someone who's really interested in imaginary, but kind of at least a little bit scientifically grounded animals, which, which is me. That's me. I'm that person, right? And that's, <laughs> I think, really kind of the the hook for my joy of this story that works in so many, so many uh, different uh, genres works in so many different genres. My entry into this story is learning about the Sand Kings themselves, their nature, what their societies are like, the weird molting, their behavior, all of that. For me, that's the hook. And I think you lose something of that when they're just weird monsters that you know fell to Earth from a, a space rock that you found in the desert. Yeah, I, I, I totally get I mean, you and I have totally different appreciations of this story. And it's remarkable that we both find like a real type of fulfillment in the way that Martin explores these different <laughs> trope elements that we love. For me, this is a this is like the cursed object from the curiosity shop story. And so stripping that away to me would would really remove an element of this story that I love. And I'm for me, the the weird fiction elements of this story, the cursed object stuff, the Dorian Gray stuff, which I think there's some of that in the adaptation. That's what I'm here for, to see this uh, kind of ethical story play out or monster story play out under the guise of a cursed object story. And, uh, you know, to me, being interested in um, ants from Mars is not the quite the way in. So, I mean, Glenn, you, you were talking about how, you know, 
some of the ecological stuff is really fun for you, but, um, you know, maybe also some of the space elements and, and things like that. So what would your ideal adaptation of this story look like? What are the things you, you have to keep in there? Is it the trip to rainbow Boulevard in Asgard or, you know, would you keep this house more in a single location and hit at all the other space stuff in order to s- save money? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if we're talking specifically about adapting this to the screen and, you know, I guess that's, uh, yeah, yeah, like that's obviously what we're talking about here, of course. I, I think that, you know, if you're going to adapt it to, to screen where, you know, world building is done in such a very different way, I would really want to keep the space setting because, yeah, for me, that's that's a real hook is that I'm interested in this as a bit of ecological science fiction or environmental science fiction. I should say that there is also a lot of this in the Thousand World setting. In fact, Martin has a, a series of stories about a character named Tuff, who is an environmental engineer with an environmental engineering spaceship. And he goes around from planet to planet and... Um, solves or renders worse uh, environmental catastrophes that they are having. These have all been collected together in a, a book called uh, Tough Voyaging that is probably, well, I'm, I'm certain it was out of print for a while, but I think now anything Martin has written is back in print because, hey, Game of Thrones was a hugely successful TV show that people have heard of. Um, and so I recommend that. And, and in fact, that's probably my favorite Martin is those stories. So I would want to keep that. But I think then that what I would end up needing to change here in order to not be trying to do too many things for a TV audience or, or, you know, just for time constraints would actually be to get rid of Cress and the whole like sociopathic businessman throwing dogfighting parties element and actually make this a story about scientists maybe discovering these beings in the wild and then uh, moving some of them to a lab setting and just just having uh, and and discovering that there's much more going on here than they first thought or something like that. And actually, as I hear myself saying that out loud, I realize it's the same choice Melinda Snodgrass made. I've just said it on another planet and not Earth. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'd, you know, if this was a big budget adaptation, I would definitely keep the space stuff. I'd play up the like teleportation stuff that I you know, brought up in our last episode um, of how there's, you know, really play on these portal and threshold images that uh, Martin is using and keep all the weird stuff. And the other thing is to really have uh, matte paintings and like chrome automobiles or something with no engines in them that like cover off the ground with wires or something like that <laughs> to uh, to have them outside of Cress's window and just have him order this on the internet from a mysterious future internet shop on the planet. Um, but yeah, for me, the, you know, the curiosity shop I'm keeping, some of the space stuff I'm keeping as background to give the science fiction element. But for me, it would need to be a really great mashup of sci-fi and weird fiction, except the curiosity shop is maybe online or something like that. And keep it real cheap by keeping the whole filming done at, at this kind of palatial estate. Well, now that we've talked a little bit about the things that we'd want to see in an adaptation of this story... Let's talk spinoff because (laughs) part of the reason why there's a curiosity shop in this story at all is that Martin wanted to tell more stories about Woe and Shade, but he never got around to it. So 
That just leads me to the question of what kind of stories do you think Martin could tell with these two characters, especially if Shade is a maw? Uh, would we go the direction that you suggested or earlier of this being about the propagation of this species, uh, maybe an attempt to take over the Thousand Worlds? Or are we going to do curiosity shop owner business where these characters are giving people objects that lead to their comeuppance and woe and shade become background characters in other types of stories about uh, dangerous space purchases. Oh, this is awesome. One of the ways that we organize our approach to these stories that, uh, you know, I, I don't know, we don't always talk about, so listeners might not realize, but hey, we change up who's doing the recap, who's doing the discussion. And it is kind of a rule that we break from time to time that whoever is not doing the discussion is not allowed to go read other stuff about the story (laughs) so that you can do exactly what you just did, Brandon, which is say, hey, I read Martin's comments from the Dream Songs volume that uh, uh, we both have. And I, I will say that this was one of the times where it was hard for me to follow the rules, but I did. So I was unaware of that comment. And it found it online, actually. So oh, it, it didn't, was? It didn't okay. come from this <laughs> volume. Yeah. All right. Well, even better then. Or I don't know. I guess I could have given into that temptation and would not have ruined it. But I think that undermines actually my reading of Shade's maybe not his nature, but of his motive about you know, why are we selling Sand Kings to people like Crest? What are we up to? If Martin was conceiving of Woe and Shade as a storytelling vehicle, because I think that this has to be the case that he's thinking, well, they sell lots of things. This is one thing they sell, but uh, yeah, next story will be about how they sell someone else, something else that uh, goes wrong (laughs) or goes unexpectedly at least. And uh, what will that thing be? And which is a great storytelling device. And I think, I think it's fair game for you to steal it now, Brandon. I think at this point, there's like a a statute of limitations there. And I can, I sense that you want to, and I I want to encourage you to. Listen, I have a curiosity shop story brewing in the back of my mind that I just, (laughs) you know, it's one of six or seven story ideas that I just have not gotten to uh, just because, well, yeah, it's been tough to write during the pandemic, quite frankly. But um, uh, yeah, this this idea uh, is is awesome. Um, and I think he'd have to keep Woe and Sheet as background characters yeah. and just have different hapless people wander into their shop and kind of get what they deserve, have the stories about the flaws of this space empire through the people who are buying these unnecessary things from Woe and Shade. That's the direction I would go in. Yeah, absolutely. Though, of course, my real impulse, you know, if I I hadn't known that, if you hadn't led with those comments and had just said, what's the sequel to this story? I mean, the obvious answer is that uh, the the one person who has survived this encounter has to team up with some space marines and uh, there need to be even more Sand Kings. Unfortunately, this story already is in the plural. So (laughs) I don't know. The next one has to be Sand Kingses or something like that, I suppose. Right. And we could also call it Starship Troopers if you really wanted to. (laughs) Well, yes. Yes, you have me there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, now that we've turned this into a wholly different intellectual property, I think it's time for us to bail. So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And as we're signing off, let me say thank you once again to everyone who participated in our social media sharing contest and to everyone who continues to let people know about our shows and about the podcast network. We really, truly appreciate that you guys do that. 
And next time, we're going to be back with another story that was selected by a winner of that contest, and that is The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. I really, really cannot wait to talk about this story. I am so excited to do that. But we'll have to wait. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.